What is the toughest question that you faced from your most important customers? What's the toughest question that you faced from your team? And how did you handle those questions? Did you answer with confidence and finesse? Or did you crumble under the pressure and end up blurting out more than you'd probably care to share? Well, as a business leader, you'll undoubtedly have faced some really tough questions over the years, and your ability to answer them will have played a really important part in the growth and the success of your business. So what happens when you're not around? How do your account managers in the business cope under the mounting pressure of a difficult and challenging question? Are the team naturally skilled in remaining cool, calm and collected under the pressure Or is this an area that really needs developing? Today's guest on Camcast is Michael Dodd, international speaker and author of Great Answers to Tough Questions at Work. Michael works with organisations to help them deal more effectively, or even more effectively, with those nightmare questions that people in business can get at any time, from clients, from prospects, from members of their own team, or even the media, particularly given the challenges that we face in a climate that's been affected by the disruption of the pandemic. Michael brings his experience as a political journalist from Australia, and as foreign correspondent, he was trained to ask the toughest possible questions. These days, he helps clients on how to answer them. When I spoke with Michael, I was keen to ask him if this was a skill that can be learned, or are we looking for natural ability to deliver confident answers under pressure? What can we learn from the people that we see in the news? Can we model what good looks like from what we see from politicians and people being interviewed by journalists? And how do we handle some of the most common questions that send us into a spin when we're put on the spot by clients and new prospects? Welcome to Camcast. I'm your host, David Ventura, a key account management consultant at camguru.com. In this podcast, we explore the strategies, systems, and skills you need for effective key account management. We talk to expert guests and business leaders, sharing the tips, tactics, and techniques for looking after your most important customers. This is Key Account Management Made Easy. So a big hello, or should I say g'day, to Michael Dodd, our guest today. Michael, welcome and thanks thanks for joining us. When I think about, I suppose, being a good communicator and being able to answer these tough questions, we'd kind of be forgiven, I guess, for thinking or assuming that you're either good at it or you're bad at it, and that's like a, a natural skill set, a natural ability that's that's been determined perhaps by stuff you've innately learnt. And yet I also genuinely hold the belief that any skill is teachable and learnable. Um, So, you know, that's where you spend your time helping others to learn this skill. How did you get into this line of work and and why is it such an important skill set for customer facing teams? Well, it is. uh, You're absolutely right, David. It is a very learnable skill. And uh, one of the things I sometimes correct people on is they say, oh, that person X, you know, who appears on the media and gives fantastic answers on Newsnight and at press conferences is an absolute natural. Now, there are some people who are absolute naturals, but normally when you find people are talking about such a person in such a way, they've actually done some training. Now, ideally, uh, if we take media training in this instance, you ultimately don't want the training to overtly show. You don't want them to be saying, oh, I can see that uh, clever little tactic that he's using there. Yeah. Uh, But nonetheless, 
uh, you know, some people come over very well and some don't. And more often than not, the ones who are coming over really well have had some kind of training, which proves that it is right. a learnable skill. Now, my job back in the olden days as a journalist in Australia was as a, uh, a political interviewer and often an interviewer of business people as well. Mm. And I was actually trained by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation to ask really tough questions, right. put people under pressure. At the time, uh, a politician who didn't like this uh, kind of approach actually invented the term blowtorch on the belly questioning, <laughs> which nice. I thought was fantastic, actually. Yeah. I think this guy had had some media training, but it didn't stop him complaining about the media. No. Uh, his name, if you're an aficionado of Australian politicians, is Neville Rann, who was the premier of New South Wales, the biggest state at the time. But I've adopted that thing about blowtorch mm. on the belly because I think it's a very colourful way of describing the kind of questioning that someone like Jeremy Paxman, late of Newsnight, used to ask. And mm. on a really tough night, perhaps Emily Maitlis carries on that tradition. Yeah. And so I was taught to put people under pressure like that. And these days, uh, the really good, helpful, useful Michael Dodd can uh, help people, often chief executives or people who are senior in companies, to give great answers to that kind of blowtorch on the belly question. So uh, uh, we've proved time and time again that it is learnable. And typically, if you take people at the top of companies, they're not there by accident. Uh, they're normally pretty smart people and they can learn pretty quickly. So it's certainly in the course of a couple of days, ideally, where people have got time overnight to think about it really deeply or think about it between two sessions, you can get people to be at the end of it pretty much media bomb-proof and question bomb-proof. Mm. it doesn't mean that it comes with an absolute guarantee that they'll never put a foot wrong. But if you uh, adopt and put into practice the kind of principles which we're going to be talking about today, then you can be a lot better and a lot more impressive with your great answers than you probably are now, whether you're answering media questions or whether your questions come from clients, from prospects, and more often than people want to admit, from their own teams. They're sure. often the, the sure. insider questions are often the ones from people who know where the bodies are buried. They're often the ones that people need to be able to answer if they're at the top of the company. Yeah. I guess your old stomping ground there of the uh, political interview is something that as viewers and consumers of the news, we get to see. We're on the, the viewing end of, and, and you know, particularly at the moment, we see politicians from all over the world squirming under the pressure of these, as you said, blowtorch on the belly questions around how they're handling world events and how they're handling coronavirus, etc. And and I guess, you know, perhaps, you know, uh, being a politician is a very unending enviable position. I'm sure there are not very many that would want to go down that route. And yet there's probably a lot we can learn from that style, that approach, that ability to handle the pressure. I can't imagine having a blowtorch on the belly question asked to you is a particularly comfortable feeling. And out of areas of discomfort often come real greatness. So I'm, I'm, I'm keen to explore what those sort of blowtorch on the belly questions might be within the business context.
context and particularly for account managers who are dealing with with their the biggest clients uh, for an organization some of the things that i thought about and, and sort of came up with that, that would be frequent questions you might get asked would be you know i've just discovered that you charge a lot more x percent more than your competitors can you uh, can you explain to us why you might be ripping us off so much or uh, perhaps uh, a client's just read some bad press about you maybe there's some links to some unethical working practices or you're being dragged over the coals for links to modern slavery and they want to know what's going on or things like that would those be the sorts of questions that would be common and you know happen a lot within business and and i guess what would your big advice be to people who are dealing with that line of questioning at uh, training sessions they're you know exactly the kind of tough end questions that we work with I mean, sometimes people do the training when there's nothing particularly pressing. Mm. Uh, You know, there's a lot of uh, generic things that could come up. And sometimes they want the training specifically for a particular issue. I mean, you mentioned the the modern slavery thing, for example. And, you know, certainly I've been brought into companies where there's been some particular issue that the media have got hold of or are likely to. And they want to know how to put their best foot forward when they're under pressure. And yeah, as we discussed at the beginning, it, it is a learnable skill. Mm. And yes, they are the type of tough questions. Normally in a training session when I'm trying to sound particularly tough or back in the days when I was a foreign correspondent and a political correspondent, if I wanted the question to sound particularly tough, I'd usually put the R word in there, resign. Uh, you know, why don't you resign because you've just lost your biggest client mm. uh, and it's clearly your fault? How do you respond to that? Mm. That's uh, the kind of thing to sort of up the ante. And so the good news is that not only can you look a lot better and sound a lot better and feel a lot better when you're giving great answers to those questions, you can actually uh, get people to the point where they're actually looking forward to it because they think, I hope they ask the resign question today because I've got just the right answer. Yeah. And you can probably guess by that that what this is really about is a lot of planning, preparation, and practice beforehand. So you may look as though you've just dropped in this fantastic line, but more often than not, it's something where you've anticipated the question and you've got your great answer ready. Now, during the pressures of coronavirus, which have been tough on politicians everywhere, I quite often look for material to mine to send out to my uh, clients and prospects where I write about how Matt Hancock has buggered it up again. Or how I think I know Boris the one John- you mean, the uh, exact yeah. interview there. <laughs> yes, or how you know Boris Johnson hasn't been as good as he can be. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, can be good. He's one of those cases, when he's good, he's very, very good. And when he's bad, he can be quite horrid because he blusters and, uh, mm. uh, and says things that he has to retract later and can make a mess of it. The real, if you're looking for a star in the political field, the one I keep coming back to is Jacinda Ardern, uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. I'd like to think people thought that because I come from uh, the Antipodes that I trained her. I didn't. But if she was one of those I had trained, I'd be mighty proud of her because she keeps You could have claimed that. No one would have known. No one would have known. You could have said, that's one of my clients there. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I won't deny it. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Just let the the thought linger there. But, you know, she is very, very good. Now, I don't know whether she's had training sort of on the face of it, but she is so good she capitalized on her natural sort of humanity very effectively, I would guess with a certain amount of confidence that she's had quite a bit of training behind the scenes to be as good as she is. And, uh, you know, she could teach people around the world how to stand up to tough questioning 
under the the kind of corona type questions which are a step up from you know your normal bog standard everyday business questions or political questions and she is good so if you're looking for a role model she's one that i would point out well i guess you're talking about corona virus and the corona times that that we're, that we're in and you know i suppose world leaders the politicians are being asked you know what what have you done to you know save lives what have you done to support economies you know that those are the tough questions that they're getting asked in business from our customers some of the questions that we're going to be asked may not feel that tough on the surface but actually are questions like you know how is your business shaping up during all all this now the real answer might be we're struggling you know it's times are tough and and we're being battered and we're we've got redundancies going on internally and we've got this and we've got that but we don't necessarily want to give that message across to people who are choosing to spend money with us and continue to do business with us so you know is that one of the tough questions that you know may not feel that tough but actually yeah we need to be prepared for it yeah i think that could be the equivalent question of you know why don't you resign matt hancock because so many people have died of coronavirus mm-hmm. uh you know if you're at the top of your company and and things, as you say, are perhaps not doing as well, which is perfectly understandable. I think the important thing to know there is that there's a good way of saying truthful things and a bad way of saying them. Now, one of the things that I always stress right at the start when people come to me and they say, Michael, you know, can you teach me to avoid the question? And I would say, no, they are. I'm only wanting you to work on the basis of exact truths. Right. Nothing other than exact truths will do because otherwise you will look like a sleazy, slimy politician trying to avoid the question. And sure. often when they do it particularly badly, they uh, the politicians will pretend they're answering it, but you know very well that they're actually not. And a good interviewer will keep picking them up on that so that it becomes at the very least clear to the audience that they are avoiding the question. And so I don't want uh, business people that I train to be looking like uh, the worst of the uh, political characters that we see on a bad day. Mm. So truth is the essence of it, but there are so many ways of doing it. And so, you know, you can paint a picture of how your company is doing and you might, you might be able to point out, you know, that you're doing, you know, better than other people in your industry. And you might be able to say that very correctly, even though things aren't going particularly well, which is perfectly understandable. And, you know, often the, the important thing to remember when you're getting tough questions in particular, when, when people often feel as though they're very boxed in and they're on the defensive, is it's still an opportunity for you to say good things about your company. And now, uh, typically, you know, I would want you straight up to answer the question, respond to it. And if you can't uh, give an answer, either because you don't know what the answer is or because there are constraints on you, it could be to do with client confidentiality or some confidential agreement about the board decision where you can't exactly give the answer. Mm. The trick is to actually say, I'm unable to answer that directly at the moment because Mm. of reasons of client confidentiality or whatever, but then you can still be very helpful and say things without breaching client confidentiality or other constraints that will help your questioner and any audience beyond that to get a better idea of the situation. And that's one of the reasons I impress upon people to plan, prepare, and practice in advance. Now, we've got a lot of clever, you know, uh, chief executives and uh, other senior business people listening and watching. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, they tend to be uh, pretty smart cookies on the whole. But however smart you are, what you don't want to be doing is leaving things to the very last moment, you know, when you're in the spotlight, 
to think up what the answer actually is. You know, you want to be thinking in advance. What are the kind of things that I can say? You know, I've had people who are going to be interviewed on the on the World Service, the BBC World Service around the world, with millions of listeners and viewers, and they'll say something like, I hope they ask me the right question. <laughs> now, when I was a correspondent, I can assure you, uh, my job is to ask you mm. the wrong questions, mm. yeah? You know, they're the blowtorch on the belly ones. So but the thing is that, you know, if you think about it in advance, yeah, you can often work out what those questions are likely to be. Yeah. So you can formulate potential answers in advance, mm. which makes you look on the spot that much smarter because you're actually coming out with something which is planned, but if you're delivering it in a way, it doesn't have to sound overplanned. Yeah. But it's a bit like, you know, those cookery people who say, you know, here's one I pres- here's one I, I made earlier. You can actually do that. And what I get people to do is uh, during training sessions and after training sessions is to make sure that they're doing that planning, preparation and practice in advance, whether it's a tough conversation with a client who you found out is for some reason not as happy with the service as you think they should be. Yeah. Or uh, whether it's someone, you know, threatening to, uh, you know, close the account or whatever it is, uh, you know, you want to be thinking in advance, mm. what is it that I can say in the circumstances, which makes you a lot more persuasive and helpful to the person asking the question. Um, and many of our listeners will be, um, will have attended sort of, you know, traditional sales training in the past and be familiar with the technique of handling objections or overcoming concerns, whatever they might want to call it. And this is just an extension of that, really. It's it's being prepared for those difficult and tricky questions so that you, you know, you're planned in advance and you're, and you're ready for them when they come. You're talking about sort of, and it, you know, it's, no surprise that we drag ourselves back to public examples like politicians and people we see on the news because it's very relevant and, and, and we can access that visually and, and, and from an auditory point of view. I often sort of, when I'm listening to answers, think, you know, is it good to give stories uh, in your answers, analogies in your answers, metaphors? You know, is the packaging of the answer important to really help uh, whoever it is that's asked it? it, it does that work? Is that, a, is that a, a good technique to follow? Yes, it is. Uh, I'm always pushing people uh, more than is their natural inclination Mm. to give uh, stories, which are typically real life examples. So, you know, if we're talking in the business world where a customer is, or perhaps let's say a a, a potential customer is asking questions, then part of your answer typically in terms of what you can do for their company would be to tell the story about how you were able to help you know, a similar kind of company. Sure. And that makes it real to people. Mm. You know, it's all very well to say, yes, you know, we can, uh, uh, you know, improve uh, uh, the service you give uh, to all your customers uh, and make them a lot happier. That's an assertion. It may be true. Mm. Uh, Let's hope it is. But what makes that real is when you paint a picture in the minds of the questioner and any audience beyond that questioner so that they can actually see what it is that you mean. And, you know, there may be a time to, uh, you know, tell the story and include some statistics, not masses, but just the right statistics to show how, you know, another client was able to improve their performance based on what you were able to sell them or provide them. So, yes, we we do want stories. I say to people, what you want is a treasure chest of stories. Mm. You want to be thinking what great examples of things 
have I done personally to help things for our clients or has our company done and actually have them and uh, you, you can actually have a little, uh, you know, a box which you can call your treasure chest on your desk or you can open a file on your computer and it's quite good if people share these within a company so that you've got particular examples, stories of how you know, mm. your company has helped other companies or mm. has helped other consumers and you want to have them totally fact-checked so that everyone is giving you know the same version of it so that you make sure that you're getting it exactly right and putting those in your great answers you know there's nothing better well when you're giving uh, an answer to an objection question as they uh, say in sales uh, you know if you can give a great example of how you know that objection can be uh, overcome yeah. because you've had success with company a company b and company c in doing so yeah, you're right. When I say we're good at something, it sounds like we're bragging. When another customer says we're good at something, it sounds like proof. And that's really, really important. And I love this idea of sharing the treasure chest with the team, having it as sort of accessible to everyone so that we've got that toolkit, if you like, to, to use. You must have heard some great answers to some difficult questions and some horrific answers to some difficult questions over the years. Could you give us an example of your, your biggest horror story and your biggest dream success? Well, yeah, the two go together quite often, uh, which is good, because, uh, you know, if you're running a session, uh, and I'll give you an example of one that I ran with chief executives, where people at the beginning are giving, I'm getting them to give the answers that they normally give. And they can often be pretty dreadful. Uh, mm. And they know that they're dreadful, <laughs> which is good because uh, you can, by the end of the session or certainly by the end of day two, get them to the point where they're giving great answers, even if you throw in the resign word as part of the question. Mm. So let me give an example of a chief executive. And this was back at the last time uh, the United Kingdom was in a financially bad way. And it was uh, a guy who ran a company and he used to walk around the shop floor and he used to say, I'm not getting a very good reaction. This was during the middle of the financial crisis. People keep coming up to me and asking, are our jobs safe? <laughs> so I got him to actually reenact that. We got a few other chief executives to pretend that they were there as workers mm. and they would ask him the question. And his basic answer was, no, they're not safe. End off. Well, honest, I guess. Honest. We, right? We're now, looking for the truth, of, though. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I, I certainly, uh, you know, gave him praise for being truthful. <laughs> but the thing was that he wasn't really doing a good service to the people asking him the question. And of course, as you know, in companies, David, sometimes one employee will talk to another employee. Uh, no, and things really. <laughs> Newsflash. Particularly with the help of social media and, uh, and emails and things. And so what we got him to do was an equally truthful but much more positive answer, hmm. which involved saying it was the same. I mean, because the jobs weren't safe. There was no doubt about that. But we got him to say that, you know, the jobs were, because I quizzed him about this, so so this answer didn't come out of my head. Ultimately, it came out of his situation. So we, we quizzed him about what the company was doing about, about uh, keeping the company safe and the jobs as safe as they could be uh, and to increase sales, which they desperately needed. And so the, the new answer, which he got quite good at saying, and it was true, was along the lines of the jobs, unfortunately, are not as safe as I'd like them to be, but we're taking steps to make the jobs and the company as safe as possible in these dreadful conditions that we're in. And uh, he was able to say, you know, we've got a meeting coming up where we want everyone to come along from inside the company to pull their ideas about what we can do to improve things. And we've got our sales and marketing people looking at tapping into 
at the time, there were certain economies called the BRIC economies, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and, uh, and another one uh, beginning with C, uh, B-R-I-C, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And they were the sort of the, the big growth ones at the time. And they were using their marketing and sales people to focus on those growth economies at the time. And so he was able to talk about the fact that they were trying to tap into these, these growing markets and that if things went well, the jobs would be safe. But in the interest of honesty, he also said that, because this is in line with the fact that the jobs were not safe, he was able to say, well, the previous time when there'd been a recession in the 1990s, they did have to lay a few people off, unfortunately. But then, and this was a, a real story, he was able to say when things improved because we made the company more durable by having to lay off a few people, we were able to bring them back. And he was able to name, you know, George and Mary, uh, who were back in higher paid positions as a result of the fact that uh, the company had done its best for the people within the company. Mm. And uh, so he was projecting that as if, you know, that could happen again. So that provided the basis of a, of a much better answer. Yeah. And uh, he was able to give that and he felt a lot happier about it. And it was equally truthful because he wasn't saying the jobs are perfectly safe. But he was showing what you're doing about it. And often when you're in a, a tough situation, it's not just a matter of giving a snapshot of how things are, which, as you alluded earlier, uh, in the current times, are not necessarily going to be that good for, uh, for some companies. It's a matter of saying what you're doing about it to make it better. Yeah. And uh, one of the things when you're answering these questions is not to be a total prisoner of the question. Now, I do want you to actually answer it always uh, or say, as I mentioned, why not why you can't answer it but in most cases you probably can answer it but in which case i don't want you to be a total prisoner of the question you're allowed to go beyond the question if you've actually answered the question you've got a license under the normal rules of conversation to say a bit more mm. and that's what we got this guy to do to actually say not just how safe the jobs were at that moment mm. but what the company was doing about it and what individuals could do about it to make it better and so you can often go beyond the question and be as helpful as possible to your asker and to the other people listening in and give a great answer that you otherwise wouldn't have given and put yourself and the company in a much better place. It's that comfortable dance, isn't it, between honesty around the issues and positivity around the solution and, and getting that balance uh, balance right. My, Michael, in, in preparation for, for our chat today, I, I found myself wondering what are the difficult questions that I get asked and what are the questions that aren't necessarily difficult but feel difficult to answer for, for numerous reasons? And one of the ones, so this might sound silly, but but one of the most common questions that, that we get asked in business, particularly when we're meeting people for the first time, maybe it's a networking event or a, a, a customer meeting, but it's, you know, when, when someone says, you know, so what is it that you do then? <laughs> right? And that sounds like such a simple question, but often your immediate answer is to give them your job title and who you work for, which is incredibly dull and doesn't really tell them anything about what you are and, you know, uh, what you do. Um, what are your, what's your advice around uh, answering that question? And in particular, I guess, thinking about this world that we're working in at the moment, we're, we're in this sort of time poor environment. Everything's being done virtually. How do we answer those sorts of questions in an interesting way that we inspire the people that we're talking to? Well, the first thing you have to do is inspire yourself about <laughs> what you okay. are doing that's useful. Now, uh, I've trained more accountants than people in any other profession over time. A lot of them are 
financial directors and people like that, but their background is accountancy. And I had the, the job some time ago where we were, it was a very big accountancy firm and I and colleagues were training groups of accountants week after week after week to go onto the media to talk about certain issues that the company was quite good on PR and was able to get the accountants on the media potentially. But uh, our job is to make sure that they shone out when they got there and had interesting things to say. Now, the typical day started, uh, I'd turn up in London with my colleagues and we'd say, oh, what do you guys do? Now, we knew they were accountants by profession, but their typical answer was, oh, yeah, we're just a bunch of boring accountants, nothing really interesting about us. Mm. And they didn't really believe in themselves. But when we really probed them, often they were actually far more interesting than they did on. They were working for big projects quite often, like big projects that were in the public eye. So that was, you know, within the bounds of confidentiality, sometimes things they could talk about, giant new shopping complexes and uh, giant new transportation hubs and things like that. And there was one example I'll give you, uh, which was a, a woman who was uh, what's called a matrimonial accountant. And her job was to work on the big divorce cases. <laughs> and she was there, you know, sort of adding up how much people earn and how much they should be sharing with their uh, divorcing partner, etc. cetera. Mm. And she was quite fascinating. Now, uh, I had the impression, she didn't tell me, but that there were some fairly big names that, you know, uh, she had to work with and uh, ones in the public spotlight. But uh, even without mentioning those, um, we didn't want her to say anything that she wasn't comfortable about saying and wasn't in the interest of their clients. She was actually quite fascinating. In fact, she became one of the stars of the group. And so to get my major point is you've got to look at yourself uh, and think, what is it that I do that really is, you know, potentially interesting to people? And the mm. examples thing often comes into it as well. You know, it might be I help people like this to do this, but if you can then go and give an answer, mm. which tells a story about how you told, how you fixed up one particular person or one particular company's problems, then that brings it alive. So that's what we had to do with these accountants. And uh, I can tell you, the accountants are great when it comes to filling in tax returns for you and things like that. But yeah, they're pretty smart cookies. And when they learn how to do it, they actually were able to shine out. Mm. And so that's what I want you to do. And if I can tell you one other little story, which is, uh, I can't vouch for this myself, but it was about uh, uh, the early 1960s when uh, President John F. Kennedy was the president and he announced this great space program. And he went and visited NASA headquarters and he got talking to some guy who was basically a toilet cleaner. And the president said to the toilet cleaner, what do you do? Now, he could have said, I'll clean the toilets around here. But he said, I'm helping to put a man on the moon, which was true. Yeah. <laughs> NASA needed toilet cleaners and other people to, to do stuff in order to uh, get their fantastic triumph by the end of the decade, which uh, President Kennedy didn't live to see, but he was impressed by the answer and told other people. So, you know, you can find a way of describing what you do in possibly more heroic terms, still truthful, but uh, heroic terms about how you are making a difference or how the company is making a difference. Well, not, and not all heroes you, wear capes, right? <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. And then you can actually look forward to that. What do you do question, mm. which, you know, if you're at a business networking event or even one online, and they do happen online uh, these days, you, you want to be asked that question mm. and you don't want to be thinking, oh, right. Yeah. What is it that I do? You know, you can plan mm. in advance and have your treasure chest of success stories and choose the, the right success story yeah. for the occasion because you know what the person asking the question is interested in and give a great answer, uh, which could lead to all sorts of 
positive things for you and your company. And it's nice to hear you talk about it quite formulaically, because for many people who perhaps struggle with these question-led conversations, perhaps it's because they often don't feel formulaic. Uh, you know, conversation and rapport can can feel a little uncomfortable for some people. And, you know, to, to be able to put a formula to the process perhaps helps with the comfort and helps with the control and therefore, you know, improves your confidence around it. It does. I, I work a lot with techie people mm. as well as people who are good with numbers. They tend to be, if you're going to do a, a personality profile, they tend to be task-orientated introverts. Mm. So uh, the thing is that they're smart people uh, on the whole and they like formulas. And so you don't want them to become you know, too formulaic, which is why, for example, you might have a whole bunch of different treasure chest stories that you could tell so that when you're giving the formula, yeah, my company does this uh, in this way with these kind of people, and here's an example, uh, you might be dropping in a different example each time. So, you know, if you're talking to an accountant, you might want to give them, you know, an accountancy-focused example. And if you're talking to an engineering company, you might want to give them an engineering-focused example. Mm. So there is a formula, and people feel a lot more comfortable with the formula, but, you know, we're still trying to make sure they connect in a human way and have enough variety, particularly with the example, so that their message is consistent, but their way of delivering it to each individual who asks can be slightly different, which also makes them feel better about themselves too. Yeah. I've got one more question that came to mind when I was thinking about the sort of questions that we're likely to come across frequently. And I wanted to get your very quick thoughts on this because, of course, account managers are often asked by a customer, how much is this going to cost me? And often the real answer is quite complex and needs a bit of work, needs more discovery, etc. What What is the best way to, to handle the how much question when it comes perhaps too early in the process for the salesperson? Yeah, well, I think you, you want to incorporate in your answer the sort of uh, how long is a piece of string thing. Mm. And so you want to be moving on from there to say, well, what I would need to, to be able to, to help you and give you, you know, an exact quotation that we could stick to would be to do this, this, and this. Now, sometimes there and then is the time. So, you know, you can move on from there and steer the discussion towards the problem that they want priced and fixed. And so you, you may be doing that there and then, or it may be something that you need to uh, come and uh, talk to a whole bunch of people at their company mm. to get a real handle on. So, you know, I, I said, when you can't answer the question straight up, you want to be able to say why. So, you know, you want to be able to say something like, well, you know, of course I can't give you uh, an exact figure, you know, without fully understanding the challenge. But, you know, you want to be sending your message there is that, you know, I or other people on our team are happy to come and have that discussion with you uh, so that you can scope out what the problem is and give them kind of lower end figure and upper end figure that, that they're looking for. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, behind your answer is, try to be helpful to the audience. Mm. And often that goes beyond just what the exact answer is, uh, you know, how much is it for X? And it goes into what needs to be done for the asker and the questioner to work together in order to get the answer that they want. Yeah, absolutely. It's time for the Camcast Killer Question. We're talking all about answers, great answers to tough questions. 
What about the questions? Uh, let's let's put you on the spot now, Michael. I know we have a regular slot on Camcast that we call the the killer question, and it's your opportunity to pose a question to our listeners to help them to reflect on this topic and perhaps decide where to take action next. So, Michael, what would your killer question for our listeners be? Well, just as a little bit of a prelude before uh, I do answer your question, and I will, David, <laughs> and that is that uh, questions are often asked badly, and so. Often, if you're working on your own questions, it's often a matter of reducing the opinion element of it. It's great if you've got opinions, but Mm. often it's much better if you don't actually state the opinion explicitly. And that way you can often ask a question without declaring your position, and it makes for a much stronger question and actually puts people under more pressure Mm. to answer it. So I do help people answer questions as well as ask them. Mm. But the question here, I think we're looking for, that's probably going to be most useful for the key account managers and uh, chief executives and other senior business people watching this broadcast, is to have your starting point, what is the worst question for you, right? Uh, you know, what is that question that you're thinking, I've got this meeting tomorrow and I hope they don't ask me that. Mm. That's probably the question that they will ask and that you want to be ready for. So I would say, make sure you've got that killer question for you in mind and the inspiring killer question that I've got for you to reply, to think about next, once you've got that tough question focused in your mind is, what is the best thing that I can say on that topic? Now, That's not necessarily the answer to the question, although sometimes Mm. it can be, but it helps you in your planning, preparation and practice to actually come up with Mm. a great answer. Mm. So if you can actually think, uh, you know, well, if they ask me to resign because uh, I've done this and that, what's the best thing I can say? Then that gives you confidence to think, well, how can I frame a really good answer around that, which does contain that positivity as well as truth, and will give me a great answer to the tough question. Yeah, like you say, it doesn't. Uh, the best thing doesn't have to be the only thing, and often isn't the only thing that you're going to say. But it's certainly making sure that that core element and the most important element, if you like, is 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 there in your answer. I'm getting so much around the formula of answering great questions, and of course, really this this overarching emphasis there on practice and preparation, and putting the effort into deciding well, what is it we're likely to be asked, what what's going to make us feel uncomfortable, you know, what what is what's going to be those that blowtorch on the belly question moments and what are our best possible answers Michael, that's been packed with some really useful tips and some great insight there. Thank you so much for joining us today on Camcast. If, if people want to learn more about you and what you do, how can they find out and uh, how can they get in touch? Uh, they're very welcome to send me a LinkedIn invitation to Michael Dodd, D-O-D-D, and uh, they can look at my website, uh, which is Michael Dodd Communications, an S on the end, dot com. They'd like to send me an email, that's good. And, uh, you know, people want to actually have a chat about improving their communications uh, for them or their team, then uh, yeah, send me an email to michael at michael.communications.com. And if you just want to stick your toe in the, in the water, I do send out every few weeks an e-zine. Uh, I call it a communications boosting e-zine with free tips and comments about <laughs> how members of the government are doing and how other business people are doing in their answers to questions. So if you just want to send me uh, a one-line email, even the subject line, and say, 
uh, please send e-zine, then I'm happy to put you on the list. And, uh, you know, that might lead to a conversation uh, between us uh, when the time is right for you. Great. And we can put all the details for that on the web page at camguru.com forward slash podcast. So check out the show notes and how to get in touch with Michael. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today on Camcast. It's been a pleasure, David. Camcast, key account management made easy. So a big thanks to Michael Dodd there. And now it's time for some reflections. So how would you rate your team and their ability to handle tough questions from your clients? Maybe think about it on a scale of one to 10. If you're scoring high on that scale and you're feeling confident in the team, how are you going to go about modeling that so that when new team members join, they can also learn the art of great answers in your business? If you're scoring low on the scale and the very notion of this worries you and stresses you out, what can you do over the next few weeks to bolster the skill set and protect yourself from uncomfortable challenges? Perhaps the best place to start is taking Michael's advice and thinking about what the hardest question that you and your team could be asked is. And then what's the best thing that you can say on that topic? If you are at risk of facing those blowtorch on the belly questions, it's clear that we need to build a culture of planning, preparing and practicing so that we're consistently and confidently ready with great answers. With communication being such a huge factor to the success or the weakness of the relationships with your key accounts, this really is an area that needs focus in the same way that we would focus on how we would communicate new features of our products or services. All the details of how you can find out more from Michael are on the show notes at camguru.com forward slash podcast. Now a request for you. We really want to bring you episodes on Camcast that deal with the big challenges that you face with your most important customer relationships. So perhaps there is a burning question that you really want answering or a topic that you'd like us to explore. Whatever it is, please get in touch via the website and let's make this happen. In the next episode, I'll be exploring the lessons we can learn from deal outcomes, whether we win or whether we lose and look at how to create a real learning and reflection culture in your CAM team.